0: Ecclesiastes. Uh, We've been going through this book uh, for uh, several weeks. Uh, It took some weeks off, uh, but now we're getting back into it. Ecclesiastes, this book, which I find so fascinating. It's uh, sort of a collection, a uh, sort of compendium, so to speak, of all these reflections on life from this monarch, King Solomon as he is coping with this word as he as everywhere appears here in the book of ecclesiastes vanity he's coping with life's vanities life's frustrations and it is wisdom he has been uh, sort of going through all of these troubling realities that he sees i saw i witnessed he sees all these things all these things that make life Frustrating and he's sort of working through them in the wisdom with which he was given by God. Going back to uh, Ecclesiastes one verse thirteen, he is sort of explicitly declares exactly what he's going to do. Ecclesiastes one thirteen, Solomon says, I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail. Hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith? Sore travail there is what he is calling life. Sort of indicative of his outlook on life under the sun. He considers it a sore travail. But he is here seeking, as he says here, through wisdom. He's seeking and searching out for something lasting. Something eternal. Something that will actually fill him as we've been seeing through uh, all of these chapters so far, he has engaged with a wide array of pursuits to try and fill that void. Accomplishments, uh, building projects, pleasures, uh, all sorts of endeavors. He leaves no stone unturned. Anything that you might think might give you some sense of spiritual fulfillment and lasting satisfaction, he has tried. And yet over and over again he comes back to the same conclusion. It's the conclusion which ends chapter 4. Chapter 4 verse 16 sums it up quite nicely. He says, there's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also come after, shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. He comes to it again. This thing doesn't last. It doesn't fill you. It cannot It only leads to more vexation and vanity. As it is also translated, perhaps you have a different translation of scripture. It's actually translated, it is a pursuit of the wind. You can't grasp it. You can't hold it in your fingers. It just escapes you. A couple weeks ago, at the beginning of chapter 5, we noticed the first seven verses and how Solomon was... Uh, Sort of exploring and articulating the purpose of the assembly of God's people, the church, in a world that is encumbered by all this vanity. With so much frustration, what's the point of the assembly of God's people? And as we saw a couple weeks ago, we, we saw that the church itself, its message is a reminder in this place of vanity that we are saved and saved out of our vanity by the truth of God himself. Recognizing his truth for us, recognizing his sovereignty. And yes, even though sometimes some of life's frustrations seep into the church, the church matters because the church matters to God. As he says there at the very beginning, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Not if, not sometimes, not maybe. When you go there, go there knowing who you are, going there knowing who God is. But as Solomon continues here in chapter (laughs) 5... Moving from church attendance, he, he he now moved to touch on another subject with I, which I think we would likely not want him to address at all. He goes from church attendance to talking about money. Two really, uh, really sort of, uh, uh, sort of powerful topics to talk about—a one-two punch of talking about personal things. Maybe you squirmed when I said that word. Oh boy. Preacher's going to talk about money again. I'm going to talk about those wallets. (laughs) Maybe you've heard some sermons that have left you really uncomfortable with ever sort of broaching this topic. (laughs) I get that. I've been there too. We all have likely at one point or another heard a interesting i'll just call it that interesting sermon on money coming from a pulpit and so what i want to be clear with what i aim to do this morning is not sort of talk about money and your money and your finances and your wallets in a way that is outside the bounds of what the scripture says for us which is to say i'm not going to guilt trip you into making a decision with your money that god does not want you to make Sometimes I think we can be in those scenarios where we feel guilted into making a certain decision. Actually, I think what my prevailing aim this morning is to show you this. That money is a mirage. Going to your wallet. Going to your bank account to try and enlarge it and increase it. As if that pursuit is going to give you the peace and the security and the fulfillment that you so desire in your heart. That idea is a mirage. It's a false reality that has been put before your eyes. And actually, as we will find here, it actually pursuing that with your life actually increases your headache and your heartache and your hurt. You see, this is a subject that Solomon was very familiar with. We know Solomon as sort of the wisest man who has ever walked the face of the earth, but he was also one of the richest men ever. Go with me really quick to get you a sense of this to First Kings chapter ten. I want you to listen, listen, follow along as I read some of the things that he was able to acquire annually. First Kings chapter ten, look at verse uh, look at verse fourteen. It says here, record, we're recorded. Now the weight of gold. That came to Solomon in one year annually was 603 score and six talents of gold. Now that may, doesn't mean a lot to you. What that means, 25 tons of gold. That was his annual income. And beside that, verse 15, he had of the merchant man, and of the traffic of the spice of merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 targets or shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into one target. One shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pounds of gold went into one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory. And overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps. And the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays on either side of the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the stays. And the twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. And all, excuse me, in all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None of none were of silver. It it was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. One in three years came the navy of Tarshish bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Talk about lavish. Solomon lived lavishly. A throne of ivory. Every single utensil made of pure gold. Even his soldiers were equipped with shields made out of gold. Solomon was a wealthy man, a wise man, but a man who was, yes, gifted with abundance and opulence. And yet what we find here, going back to Ecclesiastes 5, the prevailing thought through all of this is this, is that he had first-hand experience at what money can get you and what money can afford you. And yet he says here that it's, Empty. <clears throat> so the, 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 the thought from Solomon here is this, is that I lived this way and it doesn't work. He's not speaking sort of out of turn, uh, just sort of theoretically. He's speaking experientially. I live this way and it doesn't work. It cannot work. It is a mirage. And I think he drives this point home. Through five separate lessons that will take us here from verse 8 of chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 6. So if you can believe it or not, we're going to try and cover both of these chapters here this morning. The first lesson I want you to notice here comes in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, which is a lesson about money's injury. A lesson about money's injury. Look at what it says. If thou seest, verse 8, the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Now, these are very interesting verses. He has talked about oppression before. He's talked about injustice previously back in chapter 4. And he's going to talk about it again in chapter 8. Now here, that word injury comes straight out of this text. Because where Solomon notices, as he says in verse 8, the oppression of the poor. It's literally that word the rich here as he has noticed oppress they injure they deal cruelly with they extort the poor for their own increase here coupled With this further remark that he makes here that justice and perversion, or excuse me, injustice and perversion come out of this place. We are giving this really fascinating glimpse of how Solomon views the world. Basically is this, is that money is swiftly and easily abused and leads to the abuse of others. That those in leadership, they see what this can do to their bank accounts, so to speak. And they use their positions of power to, to, as it says here, injure and oppress those underneath them. He sees how vain this is. How injurious this is. How much this goes against the way God designed kingdoms and governments to work. It's been perverted. Perverted. Through this gross exaltation of riches. Which I think is reminiscent of what Paul later says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. You likely know that reference is talking about that money is the root of all evil. It's not just money though, it's the love of money. You see here, I think Solomon is here really articulating what often happens that when riches are increased often, they are so easily and swiftly able to take the throne of the heart of man. And when that is the case, he rejects any other authority except his own. and He perverts the way God has designed life to work. He injures those that are around him, oppresses them for his own gain. Which reveals the very often truth that we know. That the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's not necessarily riches in itself. It's man's love and lust after them. It's man's perversion of them. Utilizing them for ill-gotten gain. Utilizing them for things with which God would rather have them not use them for. And here Solomon is articulating a very hard truth. One that we know though. That so long as... Man is depraved. So long as man is sinful and insane, he will tend towards things that are sinful. He will use his power. He will use his riches for things that are perverted and unjust and violent and injurious. That's where he leads to that incredible statement, marvel not. Don't be surprised. That's a hard thing that I think to sometimes <laughs> come away with. Are you surprised when sinners sin? <laughs> Solomon is saying, "Don't be so surprised when you are seeing the world and you see those who are sinful doing sinning things, because that's their heart—the heart of man, as it says in Jeremiah—is desperately wicked. Who can know it? He tends towards desperately wicked things." And this is the horrid effect that money can have on hearts that do not know their true authority. Money takes the throne and leads him down all of these violent and injurious pathways. And it reveals and it exposes that man has left his true love, left his true authority. This uh, injury of money. Let let me hasten on, though, quickly to the second lesson in the text, which comes from verse 10. A lesson about money's irony. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5, because he says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Solomon comes right out of the gate and bursts the bubble of anyone who thinks that through the increase of their finances they will have what they so desire. He says it right out of the gate He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You will never have enough, he says. It will never come to the point where you finally reach that sort of pie in the sky status. I finally have enough. I think we think that that there's a certain benchmark that we can just get to with our bank accounts. Where it's like, if I can just get there. Solomon is here uh, uh, suggesting that that benchmark doesn't exist. Because it will always be pushed forward. Those who are chasing after success financially will never achieve what they're after. This is a dreadful irony, is it not? Because we work so hard for it. And yet this one as he says here. That loveth silver is not satisfied with silver. He's never able to experience this satisfaction. That he believes and actually believes with his whole life. Will come through the attainment of more silver. Because his appetite for silver is not filled. By the silver that he acquires. Instead he's just hungry for more. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This one who loves wealth is not even satisfied with the income that he receives. He's still hungry for more. He still is not satisfied with each new sort of dividend that comes into his way. His soul cries, More, more, I need more. The benchmark keeps moving. It doesn't satisfy him, it doesn't fill him. No matter what type of financial gain he sees, his belly is never filled. I feel that way with Braxton sometimes. Not with money, but with food. We feed that boy. The other day we fed him dinner. And we're sitting at the table and he ran off to do his own thing. And two minutes later he comes back with a box of cereal and a bowl in his hands. And puts them on the table to say, I want this. <laughs> After he'd just eaten. <laughs> Anyways, it doesn't deal with money. But it's just, it just goes to show you that the belly is never full oftentimes. Or at least we think it's not. This man that Solomon is describing here. He's describing a man just like that, who has sort of a bottomless pit in his stomach, where he thinks that silver is going to quench that hunger, quench that thirst, and it never happens. Notice verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6, because he articulates this so well. Verse 7 of chapter 6 All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. He's not satisfied, he's still hungry. For what hath the wise man more than the fool? And what hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. That wandering desire is what Solomon is using to sort of express this idea that this man who is chasing after financial success This avenue, this pursuit, this way, this scheme. He's looking for all these ways that he can fill his belly. And yet his enough is never enough. Whatever he has, it's not good enough. It's not truly enough. It reminds me, I've used this quote before. But it reminds me of that that really infamous quote from John D. Rockefeller. How much is enough money? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Now, this quote is true by all accounts. Some people think it's made up. But if you read more and you do a little bit more research, it does appear true that it came through this newspaper interview. But it's made more staggering if you actually do some of the research on just how much net worth John D. Rockefeller had. Of course, he's... The founder of Standard Oil and by all accounts he is considered the wealthiest person in the modern era. If you adjust his net worth for like inflation and stuff in modern dollars 2020 it's roughly 340 billion with a B. Just a little bit more. Just maybe another billion, I don't know. Maybe another $340 billion. The lover of silver is not satisfied with silver. His appetite is not filled. This is such a sad and dreadful irony that money itself possesses. It is always going to leave you wanting just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And so it is that chasing... <laughs> Financial success as, the, as a means of finding the hope and the peace and the meaning and the satisfaction that you so desperately crave is actually in, uh, choosing a wild goose chase. You're running after something that doesn't exist. You're chasing something. Actually, as Solomon here says, you're chasing the wind. It's vanity and vexation of spirit to spend your life hoping to finally realize But it's actually a dreadful irony. Thirdly. A lesson about money's futility. Because in addition to showing us just how futile it is. And just how injurious it is to put all your hopes and dreams in this pursuit of riches. He actually reveals in chapter 5 verses 13 through 17. Just how powerless riches actually are. Notice verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept, hoarded for the owners thereof to their heart. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb naked, shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore travail. Sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Solomon here is indicating... (laughs) A very futile point about money is that, that these riches, they, they are a very futile place to derive your confidence for the future. Precisely because you cannot take them with you when you die. You can't take all of the things that you acquire for yourself with you into eternity. Notice verse 15 again as he says, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And shall take nothing of all his labor which he may carry away in his hand. We tight fist. We clench our bank accounts while we are here in this life. And in some ways we are right to do so. Stewarding them. Utilizing them for the good and the glory of God. Yet we tight fist them thinking that we can take them with us. But when we die our fists open. And we can't take anything with us. As we came into this world, so will we leave this world. It doesn't follow you. It decays just like our bodies will one day. No measure of abundance or financial success can safeguard your soul for the afterlife. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6. Listen to these words. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is a it is common among men. It is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches and wealth and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. If a man begat a hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told, yet he hath seen no good. Do not all go to one place. It doesn't gain you anything. It doesn't achieve you any sort of better standing, any sort of better status. The rich and the poor, the ones who are wealthy and the ones who are perhaps less wealthy. They enter into eternity in the same exact way. I always think I always think about those pyramids over in Egypt that are now just collecting dust of all those trinkets and all those artifacts that are there with them. They supposed that if they were to be buried with these things, they would make them have a better life in the afterlife. They were buried with all these things. It would afford them greatly to be in a better status when they reached the so called shores of paradise, and yet what's happening to them all? They're rusting, collecting dust, rotting away just like their bodies did. You see, there's no buffer that we can acquire through the attainment of all of these things. All of these riches under the sun when we get to the end of days. In the final analysis, there will be no partiality between the rich and the poor. All that matters is faith. There's no tr- true peace of mind to be found here. It's so interesting as he is talking about this. This sore evil in chapter 5. And he's talking about how it's going to, he cannot even enjoy it. Notice verse, actually verse 2 of chapter 6 where he talks about this. One who is blessed with riches and wealth and honor beyond measure through his soul has no desires. And yet he says he cannot even enjoy it. He cannot even eat of it. Because he's so stressed about losing it. (laughs) Verse 16 of chapter 5. And this is a sore evil that at all points as he came so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? What's the point of it all? What does all this acquirement and ballooning of his riches acquire for this man? Nothing. Except to look upon it. And hope that he doesn't lose it. You see those who are thought to have everything. Leave this place under the sun, the same as those who have nothing. And this leads me to point number four. A lesson about money's entry, a lesson about money's futility, a lesson about money's, <coughs> excuse me, irony, for a lesson about money's tragedy. Because this man, as he says here, look at verse 17, listen to the sadness of this verse. All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. How tragic. And there's a fascinating description that Solomon has been using and attaching to this sort of pursuit of riches throughout these chapters. Notice verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, there is a sore evil. Notice verse 14. But those riches perish by evil travail. And verse 16. And this also is a sore evil. Notice verse 1 of chapter 6. And there is an evil which I have seen under the sun. And at the end of verse 2 of chapter 6, and it is an evil disease. You see, in each instance, these words are all suggestive, coming from the same sort of Hebrew root word for tragedy and calamity and distress, and it's all accompanied by this unhealthy, unwise, lustful pursuit after riches. You see, Solomon had in mind so clearly and precisely to articulate exactly what it looks like when money becomes your God. Life becomes tragic. It becomes an evil disease. It leaves you in futility. It leaves you in tragedy. And this is the opposite. I'll confess, this is the opposite of what we tend to believe, isn't it? We often, I'll say, I often reason, I won't assume to talk for you. I often reason, maybe you can relate, that if I just had a little bit more financial security, I would be okay. That I, I wouldn't have to worry so much. All those bills that keep piling up, it doesn't matter. I, I could pay them all off. All those student loans that you may have, we can get rid of them. We could get out of debt, out of a mortgage. We could stop trying to make that clunker of a vehicle. Keep on driving. could afford that house we've always wanted to be in. We have that thought. Again, it's that pie in the sky sort of attitude towards finances such that money becomes our savior. If I just, if I could just, all our worries would be made to be quieted with just a little bit more. And here's Solomon he devastates that line of thinking by saying that with just a little bit more, actually tragedies increase. And that with the increase of wealth comes an increase of worry. Notice verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them, that devour them. And what good is there to the owners there of saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance, the increase, the income of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. He says here that this pursuit of wealth and the increase of money actually increases your stress. Which is so fascinating. It's not actually what we think. Because we think oftentimes that the thing that will bring us rest and security and safety, money, actually heightens our insecurities and intensifies our anxieties such that, as he says here, it doesn't even allow him to sleep. He's so frenetically worried about keeping his abundance, he has to stay up because he can't let any of it go away. He is so worried that this God that he has put on the throne of his life, keeping that God happy, in order to protect this abundance, he can't even sleep. He's always preoccupied and uh, consumed with preserving It's a tragic lifestyle. Such as why Solomon says, what good is it save to behold it with his eyes? What good does it serve him? What profit does all this profit serve this one who is living in abundance? And I have to think that he is imagining himself. He's thinking about himself. You go back to verse 2 of chapter 6, this one who is blessed with riches and wealth and honor such that his soul doesn't want anything. And yet, I can imagine Solomon, as he's working through this, he is thinking about himself. That for all the things that he was blessed with, he could never enjoy the blessings that he had. Because of all the things that he was blessed with, he was always thinking about more. And when he comes here to the end of his life, he realizes how vain and frustrating a way that is to live. The tragedy of money is that for all the peace and the security that you think is promised by the accumulation of more of it, it never leaves you peaceful or secure. This promise of abundance under the sun, again, is like a mirage in the desert. It's this sort of, uh, this, this promise of an oasis, and when you get there, it's nothing. When you get there, it's fake. When you get there, it hasn't even existed at all. Such it is for any form of true, lasting, eternal happiness under the sun. It's a figment of your imagination. The only form of true joy that we have here on this planet earth comes from the hand of Jesus Christ. Amen. And the commentator Charles Bridges, on this beloved book, he says this. What a strange delusion to suppose that more of this world could bring increase of happiness. No, no fruit of happiness can be found in this world's vanity. The thing is, we know this. Saying that to you is probably likely not very surprising. And yet even still, it has not prevented us from trying to do this anyways. Solomon even articulates this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. He says, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that it is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for a man in his life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? The point of all that is, that man knows that this doesn't work. And yet, even still, he squanders and pursues all these things, even though knowing that they don't work. The lie of money has been proven to be false for thousands of years. And we are still swindled by it. We are still deceived by it. Such is the insanity of sin. They say an insane thing is doing the same things and expecting a different result, right? Right? Sin is insane in that way. We expect these things to give us a different result than what someone else has tried. And Solomon is saying, I've tried all these things and they don't work. It's a dead end. And we think we're somehow different. I can make it work. I can make this actually work. Solomon, he messed up. Yet our appetite is never filled because Psalm is articulating eternal truth that this is not supposed to fill you because it wasn't designed to, it wasn't created to. Money is not meant and it never will be your savior. No peace or security for fulfillment can come out of it. And it's the height of tragedy to think that it can, which leads me to the last thing. Quickly, we saw Injury and irony and futility and tragedy coming out of this pursuit of riches. But Solomon doesn't leave us there because at the end of chapter 5 he gives us three verses which I think give us a lesson about money's blessing. He doesn't leave us in this very frustrating state of affairs. Listen to what he says. Because instead he offers this wonderful observation of the good and the blessing that can come out of Money, He says, behold, verse 18, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the uh, days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. I love Solomon's words in these verses here. Because again, like he does everywhere else, he doesn't demonize money itself. It's not that money in and of itself is inherently evil, it's actually revealing of our hearts. Each pursuit that Solomon has articulated throughout this, he wants to make sure that we know that they aren't evil inherently. It's what we have utilized them for evil, ill-gotten ends. And Solomon's point here is so wonderful. It's so blessing. At least to me, it is. As he says here, "This is your portion." And he comes to all of these things. And the point of all of this is rejoice in whatever portion, whatever life God has given you. This is a gift from God. He is absolutely sovereign over your financial well-being. Did you know that? Whatever status on the world's ladder that you are, that is God's gift to you. We may not think it that way. Actually, I think oftentimes we're more inclined to be dissatisfied with this portion that we've been given. And say, God, you messed up if I could only be in that other higher tax bracket. (laughs) Which, well, I won't make that comment. I was going to make a comment which is very relevant to November, but never mind. Scratch that from my head. I am still rolling through my head, but I'm just going to try and not say it. Because I want to so bad, but I've always promised that I won't engage into that topic. So anyways, that will be afterwards, maybe another time. But see here, what Solomon says, he wants us to see that all of what we have come from this portion of God's grace. It comes from this gift that he has given to us. Whatever you have in this life is a pure gift. It's not a reward. It's not a trophy. It's not an achievement. It's a gift from God. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It's a gift to be rejoiced in. It's a gift to be utilized and stewarded for the good and glory of the one to whom gave it to you. This is the blessing of money. That it comes from God's grace. Because you see here, all of this, all of what Solomon is saying here is that grace makes you okay with the portion that God has granted you. Why? Because grace reminds us that the ultimate gift we've ever been given, the ultimate portion that we have here in this life is God himself. It goes back to that song we sang. Count your many Blessings. It talks about that one stanza about how money can't buy you this. Money can't buy you the portion of God himself that comes through the gospel of grace. And we who are seeking enough by chasing after financial success and attainment and all those things are made to see here that that is no savior. Christ alone is our savior. He alone is our enough And it is his ultimate desire and it is his ultimate delight that we would be delighted in his enoughness. Not try and attain and obtain our own. One writer, he says it this way, that the sweet savor of Christ is the only antidote to the wretchedness of man. (laughs) Only Jesus Christ can fill the appetite of our souls, can make us not hunger for anything. Why? Because he is our portion, is the gospel alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the remission of all of our wickedness and wretchedness by the blood of Christ through faith, which is our portion in Jesus Christ. Solomon's dad, King David Listen to what he says in Psalm 73. Write these verses down. Listen to what his dad said. Psalm 73, look at verse, or just listen along, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon, uh, none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And listen to that word, my portion forever. The portion that God has given you is God himself. He is our enoughness. He alone can fill us. He alone satisfies the cravings of our souls. And so long as we are uh, made to find our enoughness in him. We are then satisfied. With this portion which cannot fail. With this portion which lasts forever. Comes from the gospel. The gospel of grace, which tells us that we no longer have to chase after this menacing mirage of happiness which money promises. Actually, way far greater and better is the invitation of the gospel, which is summed up in Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty. Come all to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No more chasing, no more running, no more squirming, no more fighting, no more stressing. No more uh, sort of uh, losing sleep over trying to protect what we've been given. We can rest. Knowing that he is our portion. Knowing that he is the satisfaction of our souls. So I leave you with that this morning. Are you content with the portion that God has given you? Are you living a dissatisfied life, longingly striving to earn something for yourself? Earn enough. Are you ruling your wallet or is your wallet ruling you? It's a hard thing to come to grips with. But not so, I think. As long as Jesus becomes and stays your portion forever. Just pray.